Well, let's open our Bibles again to Ephesians chapter 6, sixth chapter of Paul's letter to this church at Ephesus that we have been studying for some time and come to the last piece officially of a paragraph in which he describes what we've called the believer's armor. And today we'll be looking at what it means to wield the sword of the Spirit which, he tells us, is the Word of God. Let me read that paragraph so that it's fresh in our minds. Ephesians chapter 6 is the final paragraph of instruction that Paul gives, and it, it gives us an insight into what he's, his heart is for the Ephesians as he begins to write his conclusion. Ephesians 6 verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Four, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance, all petition for all the saints. The most fundamental goal of every armed force, every army, every general, every soldier is to have superior weaponry than your enemy does. If you have bigger weapons and more powerful weapons than your enemy, you have an unimaginable advantage. There's a common slogan, never bring a knife to a gunfight. I spoke to a couple of our elders this week who have military experience, and they agreed. One of them, Daniel Good, recently retired from the Marine Corps as a lieutenant colonel and Kelly Batiste, who currently serves as a rear admiral, admiral uh, in the Commission Corps under the Surgeon General, we were talking in my office about this principle, about having the need to have bigger weapons and the need to disarm your enemy of their weapons. A few hours later, Daniel forwarded me an article written by an army expert about the importance of superior firepower I want you to listen to what this article says, quote, In World War II, the United States and the Soviet Union were allied in their effort to defeat Nazi Germany. Larger manpower resource and greater national resource and productive capacity are often cited as the reasons for the Allied victory. However, history reveals that the German nation did not capitulate until the, enemy, the army surrendered. A study of the War's battles leads to the conclusion that allied achievement of fire superiority 
over the Wehrmacht of both Eastern and Western fronts, defeated the German army at the operational level. And it explains, fire superiority was the end product sought of a combination of material and personnel with the doctrine that organized, commanded, and controlled these resources in combat operations. It was the main factor for gaining the initiative and attaining a high momentum of advance, end quote. Now, what that is saying is that having superior resources of manpower and firepower were ultimately what defeated Nazi Germany. The army or soldier with superior weaponry will have an unquestioned advantage over his enemy. You don't bring a knife to a gunfight. However, what if your enemy has incredible, powerful weaponry himself? Then you go to what is the first strategic strike of any battle. And that is to take out an enemy's weapon as the first order of business. I knew a pilot several years ago who said when they were going into battle, the very first target is not the target itself, it's the SAMs, the surface-to-air missiles. If they can take that out, then they take away the, the offense that the enemy has against them. Look, that's true in today's military warfare, but it was also true in ancient Rome. Most of their battles were hand-to-hand -hand combat. The ancient Near Eastern battlefield was not only phalanxes, but it was also engaging your enemy at a personal fight level. And the first effort of every soldier was to try to disarm the enemy, the person they were fighting. This was usually a bow or a spear or a sword. If you could rid the opposing soldier of his weapon while keeping your own weapon, you can imagine the advantage is obviously untold. We've been studying the weaponry of the believer in his defense against the devil. The believer's armor is what Paul describes in this last paragraph of Ephesians. And you'll remember that Paul is under house arrest in Rome. He's there. He's able to have some freedom with having guests come in and with also perhaps even leaving under, under um, uh, uh, the watchful eye of a, a soldier. He's no doubt under this care guard of a Roman soldier, probably in cycles with with shifts coming in and out of other soldiers, and they would have been dressed in full battle Roman guard array. Their raiment would have been, have been consistent. They would have looked very similar in when, what they wore and, and how they dressed. As Paul looks at these soldiers and their battle array, it's clear to him that this is a perfect illustration it's an active and living picture in front of him of the need for every Christian to be defended by spiritual armor in our fight against spiritual forces. Look back at the beginning of this paragraph, verse 10. Finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. This has our resource grounded in heaven, in God himself. 
Then this admonition, put on the full armor of God. Don't leave a single piece off. But it takes active action to put it on. This is something you have to do. You don't just get it put on you. It's not passive. Why? So that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. We've been told how to walk in in, uh, righteousness, walk in faith, walk in wisdom. And now we're told not to walk, but to stand firm against the schemes, the methods, the strategies of the devil. We looked at some detail about the fact that the devil has methods and strategies, schemes that are specifically targeted at you. He's after you. Now, we say he and he's representative of the whole demonic force. It's unlikely that Satan himself would be interacting with any of us. He's got too many bigger fish to fry, as it were, and he's only an angel. He's not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. He's a localized creature, can only be at one place at one time. But when we say Satan, that's emblematic of his whole demonic force. Then he tells us the nature of our fight in verse 12. The struggle that we have is not against flesh and blood. It's not corporeal. It's not in, in this world but against, and then he gives a list of demonic realms and uh, classes, rulers against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Because we have that kind of battle against that kind of enemy, therefore, take up the full armor of God, verse 13, so that you will be able to resist, have a defense in the evil day, that's every day that you and I live, And having done everything, putting the armor on, to stand firm. And after telling us that we have the resources to stand firm, what's the very next phrase? Stand firm. So put it on and use it. This admonition to stand firm in our battle against Satan and his forces is explicitly laid out. By the way, it's not to engage these creatures. It's not to cast out demons, to bind Satan. It's not to cast spells or speak to them. It is to be basic in faithful understanding and application of Christian life and virtues. Basically, it's truth, righteousness, understanding the gospel, living by faith, understanding the nuances of salvation, And having a plan for understanding and wielding the word of God. Having girded your loins with truth. Put on a belt this truth. And we talked about the fact that that's the first thing a soldier would do in battle. They would have a long tunic that would extend down to the ankles. And they had a belt that went around that. They would pull the four corners of that tunic up under the belt. Cinch it up tight so they could run. Their legs were now exposed. Girded your loins. In other words, the first preparation is you know what's true. Because Satan is a liar. Remember that. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness, the defense of righteousness against your your vitals, living righteously, understanding the righteousness of Christ applied to us. Satan wants us to live unrighteously, so a defense is to have a strategy to live in holiness, in righteousness. Having shod your feet or literally sandaled your cleats, your feet with the cleats and the preparation of the gospel of peace, This means we understand that the gospel is peace with God and it also motivates us, remember what he said earlier in Ephesians, to pursue the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Our peace with God compels us to be at peace with others and to be peacemakers. Blessed are those who make peace, Jesus said. 
In addition to all taking up the shield of faith, this is what guards us, is faith believing the right things instead of believing the wrong things. And the helmet of salvation, Satan wants to attack our understanding of what salvation is, to convince us that it is what it isn't. So having a good soteriology and our understanding of salvation is critical. And now we come to this final piece of armor, which is not really armor. It's the only offensive piece listed. And take up the sword of the Spirit. Then he tells us what it is, which is the Word of God. This final piece is different. It's special. As I said, it's the only piece that Paul mentions that is both defensive and offensive. Yes, a sword is offensive, but it's also defensive. Now, the sword we need to talk about for a minute. It's really, you need to think more of, of like a dagger. It's a machaira. It was almost always used in reference to a military sword. This is different from another common word for sword, a rumphaya, which was a big, long, four-foot broadsword. This was a small one. This was a dagger. This is one that you held on your waist. It was in a sheath. That was attached to your belt, which is the belt of truth. It should make sense to you that the word of God hangs on the belt of truth. This machaira, a short sword, this dagger, needs to be understood. Can I, can I lean on my friend, Dr. Horner again? Honer again? It, it, it just... He's so helpful. He describes this. He says, it was a double-edged blade, two inches wide and two feet long and was admirably suitable as a cut and thrust weapon for close work, close hand-to-hand combat. It was placed in a sheath attached to the girdle on the right side of the body, the belt, so that it would be clear of the shield-bearing left arm and not become entangled with the legs. It is the only offensive weapon of the armor mentioned in this context, end quote. Let's look for a second at what this sword, this dagger is illustrating. First of all, we see that it is the sword of the spirit. Now, this is what grammarians call a genitive of origin. Now, all that means is you could probably translate this, the sword given by the Spirit, owned by the Spirit, possessed by the Spirit. We have the Spirit's sword itself. What sword does the Spirit have? Which is the Word of God. Now, we need to talk about this. Just as there are two words that we need to distinguish regarding swords, uh, Machaira and Ramphiah, now we have two words that are translated word we need to understand. There's the typical word that you would always think of, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and you know what the Greek word for that is? What is it? Logos. We talk about this all the time. It is the communication of God, and it's the big workhorse word for word. It means logic. It means a body of communication. That's not the word used here for word of God. It's literally the rhema the rhema of God, which means a specific, articulated, spoken word. That's going to be important, so we'll come back to that in a minute. Remember, this is hanging on the belt of truth. 
There's an important relationship between the Word of God and truth. Those are synonyms. They work together. This is especially important to combat Satan because Satan is the father of lies. That's his primary weapon. Our primary weapon is the Word of God, which hangs on truth, and God's Word is truth. So can I shift all the way to the end, our practical application? If the first strategy of a soldier is to disarm his opponent, Satan wants to disarm you of your access, understanding, and application of God's Word. But when we fight him, we disarm his temptation by revealing the lies that he tells and he weaves for what they are. Now, if you will, join me, take your Bibles and turn back to John 8 for a minute because I want you to see how this comes together in the mind of our Lord. And I know Paul would have had this in mind as he wrote Ephesians 6. John chapter 8. As you're turning there, let me give you a little uh, personal testimony. I was converted. I was saved listening to this verse preach, this passage preach. I think I've told some of you before, I was uh, working as a lifeguard in a YMCA, an indoor pool in the middle of the winter. And it was uh, echoing and in there, echoey in there. And I came in one morning to do what I did at 5.30 on a Saturday morning. You did before it pulled open at 6. I would get soda ash and scrub all of the, the gutters that went all the way around the, the pool and get them ready for the, for the day. And so I mindlessly came on and flipped on the radio and went to start working on cleaning the, the gutters of that pool. And the guy who was there the night before had left the radio on, radio on the station WMBW, a Moody station in Chattanooga. Now, I, it's, I'm a high schooler and it's early in the morning so I get over there. I've got my hands all messed up with this soda ash. I'm starting to clean. And I hear this religious thing, this preacher. And I thought, well, I, didn't, I don't want to hear this, but I'm already messed up. I'm going to finish this length of the pool, and then I'll change the station to KZ-106, the rock station, which you would now call classic rock, but that's for another time. As God would have it, I started listening to this guy. And he was preaching from John chapter 8, verse 31. So Jesus, this was incredible to me when I heard it. Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him. They believed him. They thought this man has truth. He might be the Messiah. They believed him. They had a faith in him. Now he says this, if you Meno is the word, abide, continue, live in. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. You will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Jesus is saying that there's a possibility to not be a true disciple because he says, if you're truly a disciple, you'll abide, live in, continue in my word. If you're not continuing abiding and living in my word, then no matter what you believe, you are not a true disciple. You say, how do you know that? Down John chapter 8, verse 44. Talking to the same group of people. These are the same group of people who had believed him. Back up in verse 31. You, he says to these people, are of your father, the devil, the devil. 
You want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the what? Truth, because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. This was life-changing for me because I believe I was involved in my youth group, went to church. I was in the 10th grade and thought I was converted. I'd been baptized at nine years old. I was 16 at the time, and I remember sitting up on my knees, no flashing lights, no nice accompanying music. And I thought, I don't abide in the word. I don't live in the word. I don't read the word. I, I, I really have no relationship with, 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 with God's word. I'd like to. And all I can tell you is my life, by God's grace and God's enablement, radically changed in that moment. Only to find out later that that guy who was preaching was named John MacArthur. Look over John chapter 17. John 17, in the high priestly prayer, Jesus praying says, verse 14, I have given them your word and the word was, world was, has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Because they have the word of God, the truth of God, the world hates them. That should be a warning to us. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. There's our spiritual warfare. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Here it is. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. There's a connection. Truth, truth, tr the, the truth of God is found in the word. The word of God is truth. Satan is a liar and the father of lies. He wants to do everything to keep us from knowing and abiding in the word. There's our battle. The lies and deception of the, of the devil, who is an angel of light, comes as an angel of light, versus understanding the truth of God, and we find the truth of God in his word, and we know that to be canonized in the Bible. Back to Ephesians 6. Now, the basis for using the sword of the Spirit, the Spirit's dagger, which is the word of God, is believing and having the conviction that God's word is indeed the active, efficient weapon for defending your soul. Do you, do you believe that? What you do with your Bible, what you believe about your Bible is the most determinative thing about you. What you do with the Bible is the most determinative thing about your existence. Remember, this piece of armor is not only defensive, but it's also an offensive piece. Paul mentions it's the sword of the Spirit. It's an offensive empowerment against the wiles or the schemes of the devil by the enablement, empowerment of the Spirit of God himself. This is divine And don't miss the obvious connection that the sword of the Spirit is carried on the belt, which is truth. That'll make more sense as we kind of break this down. And I told you, 
as we were looking at all these pieces, that this is, to me, one of the best places for self-counsel, self-correction, self-confrontation, self-encouragement that I've ever, I've ever found in the Bible. It is so full of encouragement and help. So let's break it down. We want to wield this dagger, wield this sword. How do we wield it appropriately? Three ways to wield the word of God or the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Those are synonymous. How, are, how do we use it? How do we wield it? Three ways to wield the word of God. You're going to know these so intuitively, so honestly. The question is, do we do it? The first is this. You have to know the word. You have to know the word. I'm convinced that the reason most believers struggle to trust the power and sufficiency of God's word is directly traceable to the believer's ignorance of God's word. You just don't know. I will never forget when I was ministering to college students, a college guy who was, I was having discussion with, was a moment of counseling. He was having a struggle with the same sin over and over and over, and he wanted some help. And, and so I was asking him, well, where's your mind in the moment of temptation? What scriptures are you using to, to fight this? How, and I was talking to him about God's word and how practical it is. And he just stopped me and he says, listen, I've read the Bible. I know what the Bible says. And frankly, using Bible verses like aspirin in the middle of my temptation is of no help. I know what the Bible says and it's not helpful. I need something else. He literally said that. And so I said, well, man, that's, that's impressive that you know God's word so well. I, I mean, like in the specific sin that you're talking to me about, I know that Amos talks about this sin. H how have you used uh, God's word and what Amos says about this? He says, I know what you're trying to do. There's no book in the Bible called Amos. The point was, he was ignorant and didn't even know it. You, one of the definitions of ignorance is you don't know what you don't know. If you don't know what God's word, God's word says, you cannot. It is impossible to appropriate its power and its usefulness in your life. Yes, of course, this is the read your Bible more sermon. The first most basic step in wielding the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, is familiarity with what God's word says. How can you interpret it? How can you use it if you don't know what it says? I think implied in wielding the sword of the spirit is a lifelong pursuit of understanding the contents of the Bible. Reading it. Memorizing parts of it, meditating on it, letting your mind roll around on it, listening to it. Do you? Let me say it this way. If you don't read your Bible regularly, it will be impossible to have victory over the devil. Because he has, watch this, dislodged the weapon that you have against him out of your hand. 
You don't have it in your hand. The final part of a Roman soldier's dressing would be putting his sword into the sheath on his belt. Sword of the Spirit. This is the Spirit's sword. This is his power. Now back, I said we would come back to that word rhema. It's a specific spoken word. Now this is, you can't think of this as like a casting spells or talking charms. But it's a specific spoken word. Does this mean out loud? Maybe sometimes, but I think there's more to it than that. And we can see a perfect illustration of this in Proverbs 5, in which Solomon is telling his son Rehoboam, here's how to have victory over sexual sin. Here's how to be holy and pure in your mind. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 1 says, My son, give attention to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding. And for us, that's biblical knowledge, biblical uh, data. Now he says something interesting. Listen to this. Why should you incline your ear to his wisdom, to dad's wisdom? So that you may observe discretion. Listen, listen. And your lips may reserve knowledge. I have many busted lips. And when I get my lip busted, I don't see knowledge oozing out. It's blood. What is he talking about here? He's saying that you will know, the reserve, your lips will know what to say because they're articulated by your mind. You will know what to say in the moment of temptation to who and to what? Next verse. For the lips of an adulterous drip honey. Smoother than oil is her speech. In other words, you have the, reserva- the, the reserved knowledge of God. Incline your wisdom, to, your mind to my wisdom. You know what to say to the temptation and the tempter in the moment of temptation. You have strategy, you have a plan, you have reserved knowledge. What is that? Biblical understanding so that when a temptation comes up, you know what to say. Out loud, maybe, but specifically, you know what to say to yourself. This is speaking with God's word consciously, intentionally, and reasoning, even sometimes out loud. It's learning to talk to yourself. Learning to talk to your tempting situation. It's knowing the word of God enough to remember it when you need to. Oh, it's so easy. Let me confess, and I do this to my shame. I have the uncanny ability to sometimes read up to chapters of my Bible only to finish and not know a word of what I've read because my mind had the incredible ability to multitask about 10,000 other things while I was reading. It's a great ability. I just wish I didn't have it. Do you read purposefully, intentionally, excitedly? You have to know what it says. I don't know what percentage to put on it. Eight, seven, nine out of 10 times when I'm talking to someone, when I'm speaking to my own heart about a struggle. 
it can easily be traced back to the reality that I wasn't applying and remembering the truth of God's word in that moment. If you're going to wield the word of God as the sword of the spirit, you're going to have to know what it says. Do you read? Do you memorize? Do you meditate on God's word? Secondly, you have to understand God's word. The first way to wield the word is to know it. And the second way is to understand the word. This is interpreting properly. This is the big word we call hermeneutics. It's the science of interpretation, the discipline of interpretation. You need to understand and own a hermeneutic. Said another way, do you understand how to understand God's word? This is asking and answering the question, what did God mean by what God wrote, what God said? What's in the Bible? Now, just a little insight, preaching, what we do, what I do on Sunday mornings, what our, our, the other uh, faithful uh, shepherds and preachers do in, in, in our um, teaching ministry at the church is really just public hermeneutics. Public hermeneutics. In other words, what, what I hope you can see week in and week out by what we do in, in every dimension of our teaching, from the kids, children, uh, youth ministry. I know Adam does this. I know the college ministry does this. I know they do it and thrive. And even on Sunday mornings. The goal is not just telling you what the Bible says and what it means. Part of the goal is to show you why we think that. The hermeneutics that produce those conclusions, they're not hidden. They're not secret. And here's what we're looking for. The great golden chalice that everybody's looking for, the great treasure that we're searching for, when we open our Bibles and read them to try to understand them is this. What is the authorial intent? The author's Intent. What did the author mean by what the author said? Because, super important, the Bible can never mean what the Bible never meant. It has to mean the same thing. Now, we live in a day where meaning is so, it is thrown to your own whim. It's, we call it reader response theory or reader response hermeneutic. That goes back to a German um, postmodern, one of the fathers of postmodernity, named Hans Gadamer. Let me, let me read you from his famous book, Truth and Method. Gadamer said this, The real meaning of a text, as it speaks to the interpreter, does not depend on the contingencies of the author and his original audience. That's a big deal. Understanding what someone wrote doesn't have anything to do, he says, with what the author wrote or the audience understood when he wrote it. It is certainly not identical with them, for it's always co-determined also by the historical situation of the interpreter and hence by the totality of the objective course of history. End quote. What's Gadamer said and where has that found its way into our world? Well, if you're... If you're under 40, just work with me for a second. If you're over 40, you know this. This is Phil Donahue theology. What do you think? 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 
This has bled over into small groups where, oh, please, please don't do this. When we say this phrase, what does that verse mean to you? Well, it means a lot if it means to me what it meant to the original audience. If it doesn't mean the same, then it doesn't matter what it means to me. This is attached to the doctrine of God's word being perspicuous or the perspicuity of scripture, which means this clarity. I don't know why we chose the word perspicuity to talk about the clarity of God's word. It's not a very clear word, but the clarity of God's word. God, God spoke his word, every single verse of all 66 books. And God doesn't have a speech impediment. He invented language. If he wants to communicate, doesn't that make sense to you that he's pretty good at doing it? God's word is clear. So if there's a problem with understanding it, the problem is not with the book. The problem is with the interpreter. And this is interesting because God's word has two authors, the human author and the divine author. We know that from first Timothy, excuse me, second Timothy chapter, second Peter rather, chapter one, verses 21 and 22, which says that men wrote when they were moved along by the Holy Spirit. Men wrote, they had their personalities involved with it, but the Holy Spirit moved them along. This is a product of Paul writing to the Ephesians as well as God inspiring Paul to write what he wanted him to write to the Ephesians, but it wasn't divine dictation. You know, Paul wants to write this. Oh, oh, oh you missed a, a jot or a table. No, no. He wrote from his own personality, but the Holy Spirit moved him along. That's 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. Like the incarnation that Jesus is God and man, the Bible is man's writing and God's inspired word. It's an amazing miracle that you hold there in that book called a Bible. If God is not clear in his word, then men cannot be saved or have no confidence of it. So very quickly, this is, I'm not going to take the time to do a hermeneutics course, but there are four, four words you need to remember. We interpret God's word literally, historically, grammatically, and contextually. Literally, we take God's word and at face value. It says what it means, it means what it says. But literal can include, it's not my favorite word, it really means regular, regularly, which includes figurative language. We've talked about before the fact that the psalmist says, from the rising of the sun until it's setting. And some people, as scientists, could say, see, the word of God has errors because the sun doesn't rise and set, the earth rotates. No, it includes figurative language. Have you read the book of Revelation? It includes figuratively. Historically, every book was written in a historical context. And understand that, understand that context gives us nuances to understand the genre of the book of the Bible we're studying. Literally, historically, grammatically, every grammatical point matters. Every jot and tittle, nothing will pass away. It matters when you look at a verse, what the subject is, what the verb is, what the subject is, what the predicate is. Is it a predicate nominative? Is it a predicate adjective? Is it a positive? Is it a, is it a prepositional phrase? Is it a gerund? Is it a, is it a participle? Those things matter. Theology, I would say this, is completely dependent on grammar. You get one preposition wrong, 
and you can slip into heresy. So we have to look at the grammar. And then lastly, contextually, we have to understand a verse, a word in the context of the verse, the verse and the paragraph, the paragraph and the chapter, the chapter in the section, the section, the book, the book and the testament, the testament in the canon. Context, context, context. So are you working at improving your hermeneutical skills? You can read hermeneutical books. So we'd love to recommend some of those. In fact, one of our books of the quarter is on hermeneutics right now. But one way you can do this is consistently read good commentaries. I hope you love and read commentaries. Find a good co scholar who is evangelically orthodox and solid and see how is he interpreting this, this passage. Read good commentaries. Secondly, listen to your Bible teachers and ask, how are they making the conclusions that they're making? How do they get there? And can I get there with them? So if you want to wield the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit, you have to know what it says. Also, you have to understand what it means. You have to understand the word, which leads obviously to number three, got to apply it. Has to be applied. Apply the word. Has to transform you. Brian Adams, excuse me, Brian Edwards in his excellent book, Know the Truth, <clears throat> says this. The Bible makes great claims for itself. It claims to be the word of the only true God and therefore to carry the authority of God with its every sentence in line. More than this, the Bible also claims to be the only totally reliable guide to tell us all that we need to know about God, the human race, the meaning of life, what happens beyond the grave and the way to know God. The Bible claims that its laws and statements are higher and more important than those of governments or churches. It also claims that its history, geography, and any other subject it deals with are accurate and more valuable than any theories of men. In brief, the Bible never claims to be just one book among many, but the book above all books. In addition to all this is the incredible fact that millions of Christians for the past 2,000 years have taken this book as their rule and guide for life. They have gladly obeyed it, willingly died for it. Philosophy and religions may reform, but only the Bible transforms, end quote. Paul understood this. This is, listen to this pattern and paradigm in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. Paul tells Timothy, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, good conscience, and a sincere faith. Listen, the goal of our instruction is love. The reason I'm teaching is application. There's a reason to know this. It isn't just to know it, it's to live it. And the way to find application is to understand to look for implications. What does this imply is a better Question, then how does this apply? Let me explain. We did this in, in Ephesians 5.18. Paul says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with spirit. What does that imply? Does it imply that we should never drink wine ever, and that's the only thing we should never drink? It's okay to be drunk with distilled beverages, whiskey or bourbon or, or uh, vodka, LSD, marijuana. That, that's okay. But just don't get drunk with wine. Is that what he's saying? 
No, what is he implying? What's the principle? The principles don't get drunk. The medium for getting drunk in his illustration is wine. So we can make implications of I should not get drunk with vodka based on a statement that has nothing to do with vodka. Because we found the implication. What does it imply by the principle, even if the exact application is different? Now, that's not suggesting that people don't get drunk with wine. But you understand what implication means. If we want to wield the Spirit of God, we have to know it so that we understand it, so that we can speak it to ourselves and the temptation and know what to do. This is Jesus in Matthew 4. Matthew 4, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. There's spiritual warfare right there. After he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. One of the most understated verses in all the Bible. After he didn't eat for 40 days, he got hungry. Okay. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. Why would he tell Jesus to do that unless he believed that Jesus could? Tells you something about the devil's understanding of the deity of Christ makes stones into loaves of bread. But Jesus answered and said, it is what? Written. It's written. The Bible says, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. A quote from Deuteronomy 8.3. He knew it. It was accessible. He was ready to apply it because it was in his mind. Then the devil took him into the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. Now the devil does something else. I'm going to use my bad hermeneutic and my bad understanding of scripture to trick you into your understanding of scripture. So you'll think about the Bible like I do. For it is written, the Bible, the devil says it is written. He will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against any stone. The devil knew the word, understood the word, but did not apply it correctly. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, <laughs> it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. A quote from Deuteronomy 6.6. 6. He knew it. He understood it. He applied it in the moment. And the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall, not, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Deuteronomy 6.13 and Deuteronomy 10.20. The devil left him. And behold, angels came to began to minister to him. The sinless, perfect Son of God exemplified what Paul, I think, is incurring us, encouraging us to do to wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Jesus knew the Word of God. He had memorized the Word of God. He understood the Word of God. And he knew how to apply the Word of God in each specific attack by Satan and temptation, even when Satan was twisting the Word of God to try to make him think otherwise. He could recognize bad hermeneutics and bad teaching because he understood right interpretation. 
If you want to use the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, you need to train your mind to look regularly for temptations from the enemy. Learn to identify those temptations and then think about what passage informs my mind to choose God over sin, to choose righteousness over unrighteousness, to think right over wrong and eternally rather than temporally. When I was in high school, I think I may have shared this with some of you before. There was a, a wrestled and there was a friend of mine who before every match, he would we'd be back in the locker room getting taped up and stuff, and he would take a Bible and just start rubbing it all over himself. I said, why are you doing that? I mean, maybe I should. Um, he said, I want the power of God on me. Does that work? I mean, if so, couldn't we just put a Bible under our pillow and just... Sleep our way to Jesus? No, no, no. You have to know it and understand it so that you can apply it. Let's return to where we began. The first strategy of battle is to remove the threat or the weaponry of your enemy. We are Satan's enemy as children of God. And don't miss the reality that he sees. He sees your Bible. He knows about the belt of truth. He knows of the sheath that holds the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit. And he wants it out of your hand. He wants you to ignore it. He wants you to misunderstand it. He knows you are carrying the sword, the spirit, the word of God, and his great desire is to make you ineffective in using that weapon, which he knows will attack him. What's Satan's weapon? Deceit and lying. How do we disarm our enemy is we understand the lie. We understand that sin may bring temporary joy, but not lasting satisfaction. We understand that Pride brings immediate gratification, but ultimately will ruin us. We, we see what God's word says about the individual temptations that we're facing. We train our mind to look for them and apply it. How can Satan disarm you? He keeps you ignorant of God's word. You, you just don't know it. He tempts you to disbelieve and doubt God's word. He makes you question God's word. He convinces you that the Bible is not sufficient for your life and your battle with sin. You need some other worldview to help. Our Lord Jesus Christ is superior to the devil and his forces in every way, but still we are subject to his attacks. He's ruthless, fierce, aggressive, unrelenting. But God's word will protect us and defeat him. You, you can't think about this like, yeah, I should do that for when I'm under attack. You are under attack where you sit right now. These creatures are ever watching you. They can't wait for you to put the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, down. They want you to be vulnerable. 
with inattention to God's word. He is most dangerous when we are not diligent. He's a liar and the father of lies, but he comes as an angel of light, 2 Corinthians 11, 4 says. He comes as a wolf in sheep's clothing, Matthew 7, 15 says. So Jesus taught us to seek our God in prayer and wield his word against the temptations of the devil. In the Lord's Prayer of Matthew 6, he says in verse 13, do not lead us into temptation. That's, have you thought about that? Don't lead us into temptation, which means we see and recognize the temptation and have choices to make so that we don't get led into it. We're ever aware our antenna is up searching always for temptation. It's everywhere. It's coming. It's in your mind right now and will be before you pillow your head. Do not lead us into the temptation, which means we see it alongside him, but deliver us, and the best translation of this is from the evil one. What's the evil one doing? He's tempting us. He's tempting us to sin. He's tempting us to think wrongly about salvation, wrongly about God, wrongly about ourselves. He's lying to us. And the belt of truth and the word of God are our superior weapons to defeat him. And we want to take his weaponry out of his hand by recognizing his lies. We keep coming back to this in this third verse of a mighty fortress is our God. But listen how this, this verse ends in reference to this passage. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. God has willed his truth, his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, ha, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure for lo, his doom is sure one little Word shall fail him. Do you know your Bible? Do you understand it? And will you apply it? That's what our care groups and our fellowship should be about, is encouraging one another to know, to understand, and to do. Then we will be actively and faithfully wielding the sword of the Spirit. Father, give us, give us what we need to be mindful, to remember, to understand, to read, to apply, to be accountable. Oh, give us the eyes to see temptation, eyes to discern the lies that come, that tell us that sin is better than righteousness. Lies that tell us that the world's way is better than your way. Lies that tell us that our Bible is out of date, insufficient, old-fashioned, and irrelevant. Help us to cling to it, to eat it, as Jeremiah says, as if it were our only bread and our sustenance.
guard us from reading our Bibles in a checkbox manner or legalistic way, but instead read to understand and to apply. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.